0: Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. Nasdaq Sylovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com/solutions/solovis. That's nasdaq.com/solutions/s o l o v i s. Hello, I'm Ted Sides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Tim McCusker, the chief investment officer at NEPC, an investment consultant that advises on $1 trillion in assets on behalf of 400 institutional clients. Tim oversees NEPC's 50-person investment research team and leads investment strategy for the firm. In each of 2014, 2015, and 2016, he was recognized by CIO Magazine as one of the world's most influential consultants. Our conversation covers NEPC's client-centric model, meeting the needs of a range of client types, forming and implementing capital market views, researching managers, sourcing in public and private assets allocating to scarce capacity managers, and forming and leading into the megatrends of artificial intelligence, income inequality, demographics, and shifting currency regimes. I want to wish you and your families a very happy holiday season. We'll be taking a break over the next two weeks, and we'll be back at the turn of the year with a great roster of capital allocators. Happy holidays, and have a very happy new year. Please enjoy my conversation with Tim McCusker. Tim, great to see you.
1: Great to be here. How does somebody get to a seat like yours? I'm sure everyone has their own unique journey. Mine actually started with teaching. I was running track in college and decided, you know, senior year, I just really wanted to focus on that. I wasn't going to worry about a job. And that worked out great. I had a great experience doing that. But August rolled around. I didn't have a job. (laughs) And the town next to where I grew up needed a math teacher. So they waived all the training and credentials that you needed. And I went and taught math to high school students for a year. And I tell people it's the best training you could ever have. I've stood in front of billionaires, I've presented to a room of 400 people at conferences. I've never been more nervous than standing in front of 20, (laughs) 15-year-olds. Was that just the first time or was it all the way through? It faded away over the first couple months, but the pressure of being in front of people, having to present, learning that, and then the one-on-one stuff too, having to communicate concepts clearly, having to really teach and educate was just, I didn't know it at the time, but the experience that I got in that year was just incredible for me and awesome and set me up in a great way. So I did that for a year. And then the advice that I had gotten as a math major was, you can be a teacher or an actuary. And so I tried the teaching thing and then went on to be an actuary. So I did all the exams. I worked at Towers Perrin for a number of years and sort of figured out that everyone was a lot more interested in what the investment guy had to say than what the actuary had to say. So jumped over to the investment side and went to work at NAPC. And it was a really unique time when the Pension Protection Act had just been signed into law. So Corporate pensions were thinking about liability-driven investing all of a sudden. And I was one of just a few people at the firm who could speak that language. And so I was getting all these opportunities to go out and present and work with clients and help them implement LDI and think about whether that was right for them. And it was great. I got opportunities probably well before I was ready for them, but kind of grew into it and took all that asset allocation work, then shifted to manager research. I shifted to covering global asset allocation and multi-asset managers. And that was a great perspective on how allocators think about investing across the global investment spectrum, then ended up leading our manager research and asset allocation teams. And now for the last five years have been chief investment officer leading our overall research. Okay. All right. We've got a lot to go over. Why don't we take a step back and why don't you describe who NEPC is. Sure. So NEPC has been around since 1986. We're a global investment consulting firm. I think probably about 400 clients, about a trillion dollars in assets under advisement, and a very diversified client base. So we work with public pensions, multi-employer pension plans, corporate pensions, endowments, foundations, healthcare organizations, And then private wealth, family office type entities. And that diversity is really important to us. It gives us just a great perspective on what all kinds of different clients are thinking about, worried about the challenges that we're facing. And it's an incredibly complex puzzle to try to bring all those different clients together, but also very rewarding because you see unique insights across those different client types. When you have that diverse of a range of clients, how do you approach
0: the core problem of how you serve them?
1: I think... At the end of the day, the investment objective is to earn a certain return to beat a benchmark, beat a liability, beat a long-term return objective. So if we can boil it down to the core investment goals and the core organizational goals, we can get to some themes that make sense across all clients. But the way that we organize is for our consulting practices to organize by those client types. So every client is unique, but There's certain things that are similar for all healthcare organizations. All healthcare organizations are going to think about their day's cash on hand, how much liquidity they have, and they're going to think about all the regulations that come with healthcare and the consolidation that's going on there. All public pensions are going to think about their long term discount rate, their funded status, the political dynamic within their own jurisdiction. All corporate plans are going to think about liability-driven investing and whether they want to be in their pension plan long-term. So there's certain themes across each client type that are similar. And so we organize our consultants to really focus on one segment versus another so they can specialize. And then they can bring those insights to our research team. And we can take those insights and try to find the strategies that fit with those insights.
0: Yeah. How do you think about the competitive proposition? So there's a lot of other large consultants... You're serving in every different channel
1: and some just specialized in one. How does the competition work? Yeah, it's funny because it would be a lot cleaner for us if we just had one competitor. Then we could figure out how to attack them and and try to beat them in the best way possible. And when I think about those different client types, we've got a different formidable competitor in each and every segment. So we've got to think about how we stack up against different kinds of competitors. Sometimes we're going up against a global actuarial firm that has global resources offices across the world, but maybe a different overall research mandate where they're trying to build out a database of managers and have an opinion on not every manager, but a vast majority of managers where – we're trying to take a much more focused approach to our research and trying to identify just the very best ideas and get those into client portfolios. And then in other segments, we're dealing with more niche players who are very, very focused and looking at a small set of managers, but maybe don't have the resources that we have to cover everything. So we've got to think about the benefit that we bring and being global and being able to cover everything. And in some ways, you feel like you're saying different things to different clients. And I think we're trying to meet Clients meet investors where they are. I think one of the things that we really value about NEPC is that we can be flexible with how we work with clients. It's not just one model, one portfolio. It's fitting our client service model, fitting how we think about investments to that particular client. It may mean that we're doing more asset allocation work with one client, more manager research work with another client, working more closely with staff with one client, working more closely with the board with another client. That flexibility helps fit with the unique needs of each client. When you're going to pitch for business, it sounds like you
0: are kind of sensing who's the competition and you're going to cater your story. Is there
1: an NEPC story? There's an NEPC story that is consistent every time, that we are client service oriented, that clients come first in everything that we do. And you can feel that in our DNA and our culture and how we work together, that it's a almost to a fault sometimes. It's a yes culture. Between research and consulting, research has to trust that if a consultant is asking a researcher to attend a meeting or asking a researcher to look at a manager They've got to trust that the consultant's thought about that and understands the value it can bring to the client and that there's a client benefit to doing it. And the researcher says yes and does it, right? And so that client service aspect, everyone says they're great at client service. I really believe it's part of our DNA. And then the independence, I think, resonates across any of those messages that we are – We're 38 partners who own the business 100%. There's not an outside owner. We're not publicly traded. Whether it's a differentiator or not, that's part of who we are. And that's when we think long term, five years, 10 years, 20 years out, that's who we want to be. There's been a lot of consolidation in our industry. A lot of those big players have scooped up some of the smaller ones. That's not part of who we are. We're not looking to grow the business and sell out in three years. We're looking to be an independent firm that is passing off to the next generation over time.
0: I want to turn the investment side and You mentioned something that was really interesting, which is that you try to hone in your views and then express them for your clients. How
1: do you do that? We're a 50-person research team, roughly. And within that team is an eight-person asset allocation group that doesn't really worry about the manager research side of things, just focuses on capital markets. They have two jobs. One is monitoring and maintaining all of the tools and asset allocation models that we have, tweaking and improving those, and then helping to set all of our capital market views. So we're going through a forward-looking process of having building blocks for every asset class to come up with forward-looking five- to seven-year assumptions for each asset class. So you can use those in portfolio construction to think about risk and return, but then also setting views across markets. What do we think is more attractive, U.S. equities, non-U.S. equities? equities versus fixed income, alternatives versus traditional, and and very granular views, too, down to high yield versus investment grade, CLOs versus bank loans, even. So that group is spending a lot of time going through that. We roll out new views every January, roll out new assumptions every January, and then tweak those modestly throughout the year. If there's big changes in the market, we'll adjust in a bigger way. But it's that rigorous process is going on right now for us. I got to ask for a sneak preview. Is there, as you're looking out
0: to January, is there anything that you're seeing that doesn't feel like consensus?
1: We see a lot of late cycle dynamics starting to play out in the market. And I'm struggling with whether to call that consensus or not, because it feels like when we talk to other multi-asset managers, allocators of capital, We're hearing similar things from them. We're hearing similar viewpoints that are pretty consistent with that. When we look at the overall market picture and what's in the press and what people are forecasting, what's priced into markets, it doesn't feel as consensus all of a sudden. The market is still pricing in pretty lofty expectations for earnings growth. The market is pricing in pretty modest increases in Fed policy over the next year or two years. So It feels non-consensus to the calculus of the market dynamics, but feels like it's pretty consistent with what we're hearing from other allocators of capital. So I don't know if that's consensus or not.
0: Right. (laughs) So if you have that view, how do you tweak
1: asset allocation to reflect it? It starts with risky asset allocations generally. It's always a tough conversation no matter matter how disciplined and process-oriented we want to believe institutional investors are, it's human beings making decisions at the end of the day. So the fact that U.S. equities have been on an incredible run makes it hard for committees and investors to not only capitalize on those gains and rebalance, but take down those allocations somewhat and lower allocations. That's a place where we've been talking about over the last year. And US equities have continued to do pretty well, but I think we're really pounding the table now that that's a place where we want to rebalance. Now, the harder thing is that we've been in favor of international equities and haven't seen great performance there. And we wonder now if we're going to get that good performance, because even though expectations aren't that high and there's not really lofty expectations priced into those markets, the growth picture doesn't look great in Europe or Japan not a lot of stimulation coming through anymore, at least in Europe. So we really wonder if we're ever going to get that outperformance. So to us, it just feels like a time to get more conservative and lower equity allocations, increase safer fixed income exposure.
0: You see a lot of dynamics, governance boards, committees, Tell me a story about something that you saw that's really successful in adapting and something that you
1: think should adapt more than they do. I can go by client type as one example, but then within those client types, you have such a wide range. So We can sit down with a family office client in the next month and explain that story of what we see going on and probably provide a recommendation of some tweaks to the asset allocation and it can get approved on the spot. We recommend you lower US equities by 5% and increase treasuries as an example. And they can look at that analysis and say, good, we're doing it and it's implemented within a week. On the other end of the spectrum, we can go to a, say a public plan and we've gotta go through the governance process. We've gotta go through monthly meetings. We've gotta think about what that means for their discount rate and have conversations about that. And then, by the way, if they actually want to do that, we're talking about moving billions of dollars to make a 5% change to the portfolio. And so we could be looking at a change that's three to six months out if we can actually get that change through. Now, within public funds, and I guess I should generalize that, and for folks on the research team at NAPC, a lot of times we think less about the client type and more about their structure and their governance model. And so you've got really sophisticated kind of staff driven organizations. And so that can be large public pensions. It could be medium to large size endowment organizations. It can be some of the large corporates that are out there where they've got a staff that's maybe not as big as our research team, but they've got someone covering equities in the way that we have someone covering equities. They have folks focus, where that's their full-time job. And in some of those cases, their governance structure is one where staff has a lot of authority to make decisions. And in those situations, you can see a much more streamlined process to get decisions done and get things implemented. When everything is going through a board-driven process, I think that's where you see things really get slowed down. Do you see those dynamics change? You do. If I go back over the course of a decade, I'd say, two things have changed. There's definitely been a buildup of investment staff at organizations, whether it's building out a staff that already existed or organizations deciding that they need dedicated staff. So I don't have statistics on this, but it certainly feels like there's a lot more dedicated endowment CIOs or healthcare CIOs than there were 10 years ago. And that's natural that Over the course of a decade or more than a decade, an organization that had a pool of assets that was three or four hundred million dollars that's now over a billion that's appropriate, that they probably need more dedicated oversight. And so they hire folks or move people within the organization into those roles. So you see that shift where there's more focus on it from the internal side of the organization. And then you also see that picture that I was painting where as that dedicated staff is built out, boards or investment committees seem to be getting more and more comfortable with giving those staff members some authority, if not full authority, but authority to make manager decisions, hiring and firing decisions, but asset allocation maybe stays with the board is one example that we see increasingly.
0: So there's another shift we've seen in the consultant community, which is consultants creating
1: asset management businesses as OCIOs. What's your perspective on that? So that's the other end of the spectrum that there's a tipping point. The asset size and number is different for every organization, but at some point they've got to make a call. Do we want to have dedicated staff who manage this and focus on our investment program? Or do we want to have someone else do that for us? And so you're seeing a real split in the consulting model. If we think back over 20, 30 years, consultants were always true advisors and partners with a seat at the table. And it's part of why I've always loved consulting. We're really involved in the process. We see the decision from beginning to end and see the impact that it can have. And that's still a big part of the market, but you are seeing more and more investors move in one direction or the other towards the tails. Either they're going to work with consultants in a more limited way, where they've got a dedicated staff and they need a little bit less from consultants, or they're going to rely fully on consultants or asset managers to run their whole portfolio in an outsourced CIO fashion. And that that business has taken off in an incredible way. I mean, the, the assets flowing into OCIO have been increasing tremendously. We've seen that as a business, but we've also seen that with all of our competitors as well. Have you at NEPC gone into that business? We have. We were probably a couple years late, more than a couple, I'd say. We, we were late getting into that business. It was... 2011, 2012, when we launched our OCIO platform, probably from a pure business perspective in the least scalable and and least NEPC friendly kind of way. I think in that client first mindset and that belief in our fiduciary responsibility that we have, we didn't want to launch funds. We didn't want a one size fits all model for our clients. So We have what is now a large OCIO business with probably over $20 billion, over 50 clients. Every portfolio that we build is bespoke. There's some benefits to that for the client. It means that it's customized to their specific needs. It means when they come on, we're looking at every manager existing in their lineup and not blowing everything out. Whether it's a top-rated manager for us, if we think it's a good manager and an appropriate manager we may keep them in the portfolio. And you know if they decide to leave us someday, which we hope doesn't happen, they're not creating transaction costs, having to liquidate out of a couple of different funds and then move into something else. They still own all the assets. So we just thought at the end of the day that that was the better model for our clients. It's a much less scalable model for us. It means we've got a set of portfolios that are built by NEPC experts instead of working through a board or investment committee structure at the client.
0: What challenges did you find making the shift from being a
1: consultant and advisor to a client to being their asset manager? A lot of operational challenges. There's a lot of stuff that comes up as you're building that out that you just don't know until you're actually getting into that. What's an example of one of those? It's trading, but not trading securities, but just the, the process and discipline of monitoring a portfolio on a day-to-day basis. It was eye-opening for us because I say that we're in the decision from beginning to end, but at some point, NEPC and consultants in general walk out of the room after a recommendation and decision has been made, and now historically as an advisor. Someone else has got to fund that. (laughs) The details and minutiae of going through an operating agreement, getting side letters written, figuring out what vehicle among the many vehicles within a strategy, figuring out which one is appropriate for a client that was a learning experience for us that we hadn't done much of that. That was something that staff always handled or someone on the client side handled. So the details of that were something that we had to get up the curve on. Being able to monitor and track everything was something where we had to invest several million dollars to build an operating platform that worked for us. There's, I think if you're starting to trade equities, there's lots of things off the shelf because there's lots of equity managers out there. When we were building this, there's not a lot of OCIOs. There's not a lot of stuff off the shelf. So we had to work with a technology partner to build something that worked for us. I think we have a leading system now, but it took time, effort, some trial and error to get there for sure. And on the investment side, were there any
0: behavioral changes or dealing with behavioral bias that you hadn't had to before?
1: Yeah, I think we had to be careful about not getting too short term because in some cases, potential buyers were thinking of OCIO as a much more tactical model. And so we had to be careful about what the marketplace was looking for. They thought they wanted a more tactical trader of their portfolio. That's not our view of how you run an institutional portfolio. And so we had to be careful about that. We'd bring a client on and six months in, they'd say, once we've implemented things, maybe six months after everything's fully implemented, they'd say, wait, nothing's changed. You haven't moved the equity portfolio at all. You haven't done anything in fixed income. And we'd have to say, well, our views haven't changed that much. (laughs) We're trying to think about the long-term. So I think we had to think about that more and make sure that we were comfortable being more long-term oriented, but still looking for opportunities, trading a little bit more and being quick when we saw moves. So we're at our best in OCIO when there's some sort of big event when we see we're rebalancing, we're re-upping in a way that in a typical advisory model, you've got to wait to the next client meeting to make a recommendation. We can look that equities are down 10%. We still think they have a long-term expected return that's above fixed income. We should be rebalancing now. So being quick to rebalance, but not quick to change our views. I want to turn to the manager selection
0: part of the process. You mentioned 50 people on the research team. How do
1: you organize that manager research effort? So we've historically organized it by, for lack of a better term, investment structure. So we've got a traditional long-only research team, a hedge fund team, and then a private markets team covering private equity, private credit, real assets. I'd say the overall steps of the process for all those teams are very similar, that we're gonna think about the universe of managers that are out there really easy in the traditional world. We can go on evestment and grab the entire universe of managers, do some quantitative scoring on them, and then start to funnel down on the managers where we want to focus our efforts. Hedge funds, increasingly, you can just go get the data. Private equity, more of a market survey approach where we've got to really uncover rocks and look at everyone who's out there, who's been out in the marketplace the last few years and try to forecast who will be fundraising in the next year. But similar in the sense that we're trying to scan the full universe, think about what attributes we're looking for in a manager, and then narrow down to a really small set of managers or funds where we're going to focus our time and effort, try to develop an investment thesis of why we believe that strategy can outperform in the future and then bring that through a process where there's some peer review and vetting of the strategy. So if we start with, let's just start with public equities. What are you looking for to make it through the filter? We're looking for something differentiated. We're looking for a reason why that manager can outperform in the future. So certainly we analyze historical returns and look for what's driven the returns historically. But we're looking for why that can continue in the future. What's that manager doing that's different from the rest of the market? What are those insights that they have? So if you start with
0: a huge database and a bunch of numbers,
1: there's thousands of managers. Does the team take thousands of meetings We go through a quantitative process to try to narrow things down a little bit. So in the traditional space, we use a quantitative tool that strips away the beta, the market exposure, strips away the fees, and looks at things on a rolling return basis. When we've done some testing on that approach, it's not an investable insight from that tool, but it does help us filter things out. It's very predictive on the bottom half. The managers that are drifting down towards the bottom, tend to continue underperforming. So it allows us to, say, cut the universe in half. We get into some misperception of that tool. People hear about this tool and we're talking about it in a new business or working with clients and they say, well, you're overly quantitative. And try to tell them, well, just because this tool spits out a uh, top 10 managers doesn't mean that those 10 managers will be the managers that make it through. It means we're going to focus our research on the top third of managers that come through. And that It's great in a couple ways. One, it helps us be more efficient. But two, it's a great tool for communicating with managers. Our business comes from working with clients and getting paid by clients 100%. But we're partners with the manager community and we have to have good relationships with them and we have to work together with them. So we have to give them feedback and tell them why we're not taking meetings. And so just saying no or just ignoring doesn't really help them. So being able to say, hey, here are the places where your strategy is falling short. You know, we're looking for more downside capture here. You're really weak on that factor. The consistency of your alpha isn't that strong relative to other managers in the space. And they can at least go back to their team and give the reasons why a meeting isn't productive at this point. So that part's really helpful. But The scoring system that we have just allows us to narrow the research a little bit more, and then we've got to go do the real due diligence, go meet with the management team, go understand what they're doing, and see if there's something that is differentiated. Yeah.
0: In that scoring system, you mentioned consistency returns and
1: downside protection. Are there a few other data points that
0: are attractive to you? There are.
1: We look at the statistical significance of the alpha, so we're rewarding higher efficiency of alpha and longer track records of alpha. We also have a contrarian indicator where we look at the long-term history of alpha and then compare that to the last 24 months of alpha. And so if you've got a manager that has a strong long-term history, but the recent two years isn't that strong, it's a very small weight in this scoring system, but it's a great flag for us to say, wow, this manager – has dropped down in the rankings all of a sudden, but they have a really strong contrarian indicator score. And so we just a positive yeah, flag, yeah, a way for us to do more research on a manager that's maybe drifted down the ranks. So th-
0: this stuff comes through the filter. What do those meetings then look like on your team? The qualitative
1: due diligence. It's something that I leading the group. I struggle with sometimes because you want to have consistency of research. You want to be getting towards an NEPC process for manager research where we are consistent and reliable on how we do that. But we don't want to get to the point where it's just a checklist approach and there's no creativity. We're not allowing the researchers to really go in whatever direction that they need to. So I'd say there's big categories that we want them to cover in those meetings, but each researcher can get to some of those places however they need to. So we try to balance that by giving each researcher the the freedom to conduct the meetings the way that they want, but also the structure of having to write up what they got out of those meetings in a pretty consistent way. So it could be some of our researchers want a very structured meeting where they're going through each step of the process and point by point, getting through their agenda, and that's the way they draw their insights. Others want to just let the portfolio manager start talking and then wait for that point where something sounds inconsistent and then try to not catch them in a trap, but really figure out is the logic that they're applying here true throughout or is it just a marketing statement? Yeah. What is that agenda that everybody tries to cover? There's nothing revolutionary about that. It's understanding the people, the process, the philosophy that they have, the the reason why they believe they can outperform throughout time and consistently over time, trying to get to what biases they have and do they understand those biases. I think the people part to me is the most important. It's it's not just who they are, but it's how they work together, how they interact. And sometimes that's more subtle things. Sometimes, sometimes there's a named portfolio manager, but you get a group in the room and you realize they're deferring to the director of research on everything. And that's the real power player here. And that... You may like the strategy either way, but it's a really important insight that if anything ever happens there, if if that person leaves, it's much more important than if the portfolio manager leaves. So getting to some of those subtle but important points is I think a critical part of the research process.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM and e-commerce products here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. How do you guys make decisions about what managers will enter portfolios?
1: So there's sort of two phases to it. One is going through a consistent process in research to get to who our top rated managers are going to be. We have a, a one through five rating system. And so each of our researchers for whichever asset classes they own They're trying to get to anywhere from six to 10 managers in each space that they want to have as best ideas. And they're bringing that forward to an internal due diligence committee made up of partners from research and consulting. And that's where it's getting reviewed and approved to be presented to clients. And so that peer review process is really important to us that we can give the researchers freedom to do their research in the way that makes sense for them. But that peer review process is another layer of consistency for us. So that's step one is being an approved manager. And then to actually make a decision to get it into a client portfolio is where the art comes in. Not that there's not art in the research process as well, but I think there's more art in how it gets into client portfolios. Now you're thinking about, okay, what does the rest of the portfolio look like? And it's, it's as much about what's the best manager among these six to 10 as it is, what's the best fit for this particular client? I may take a lower information ratio manager if it's got a lower correlation profile or a different set of characteristics that fit better with the rest of the managers in an investment program. And that's the researcher and the consultant working with that client collaborating together to understand those things.
0: How many, let's just say,
1: public equity long only managers are approved? We break it down in a pretty granular way. Even though we don't really work in style boxes, some clients still want to structure things that way. So we've got a set of large cap value managers and small cap growth managers and emerging small cap, international small cap. So you add all that up for public equity, it's probably on, I think we have about 350 to 400 managers in long-only overall, so probably 200 or so of those, or 150 to 200 are equity. And I'm imagining the fixed income process
0: is somewhat similar. You're starting with quantitative data. and Are there different things you look for in a credit manager than an equity manager?
1: I would say at the highest level, no. You're trying to have the same kind of conversations. You're trying to understand who the people are and what the investment thesis is. There's nuances though that are different that you wanna you're gonna to expect to have more dour and conservative people in on the fixed income side of things, that the world's always ending and everyone's gonna default versus the equity guys that think everything's gonna go on forever. So there's those natural biases that come in. Those are the natural biases that you like in those managers? Um, I think it's just unavoidable in those spaces (laughs) that uh, if you can find an optimistic fixed income guy, I'd love to beat him. But (laughs) I think there's those kind of overarching biases. But the process of getting to an investment thesis is pretty consistent across equities, fixed income, and multi-asset strategies as well. You started the public side with a big set of data.
0: How do you go about thinking about that initial filter with private assets?
1: There are some databases and tools that you can use to gather information about what funds are out there in the marketplace. The striking thing to me, when I moved into the chief investment officer role, I had spent less time on the alternative side than I had on the long only and asset allocation side. And so- I had lived in a world where you've got managers banging down your door every day, telling you how smart and good looking you are and laughing at all your jokes. And all of a sudden, I've seen the private equity side where it's almost reversed where we've got to go pound the pavement. We've got to go build the relationships. We've got to get out to conferences and understand who's out there and go out to the Bay Area and try to get access to some of these name brand high profile managers particularly in the venture space. So it was striking for me how much different it is. So there's the database work up front to understand who the overall the universe of managers is, but the experience of knowing the space and building a manager relationship over multiple years is so important on the private equity side in a way that, I mean, certainly you want to build long-term relationships with managers on the traditional side as well. But in most cases, you can pick up the phone with a long-only manager and say, hey, we'd like to allocate to you, and it can be done pretty quickly. It can be a process where, and it can be tough for our private equity folks, they can Go through a process of fully reviewing vetting a manager bringing it through our process for their fund and then we can't get it through in time or we can't get allocated there's still a benefit to that though because if we didn't get into fund three we've built the relationship now and now a couple years from now when fund four rolls around we can get on top of that and get clients in that time so we've been able to take a long-term view there and build relationships over time your clients have a trillion dollars Venture capital, (laughs)
0: especially when the common knowledge in venture, which is I think proven true with statistics, is that there's a small subset of the managers that are very capacity constrained that generate most of the returns.
1: Is it worth trying? We think it is. And we've seen in that trillion dollar number, the large public funds aren't doing much in venture. So it's... We definitely think it's worth it. I'd say there's more of an appetite for venture from our smaller and medium-sized endowment clients. A 500 or $1 billion endowment can make a 5 or $10 million allocation to a venture manager and have that matter at the end of the day. If someone covering buyouts for us has a great idea, they can go through the process, bring that through, and have hundreds of millions of dollars allocated to it across our client base. Our venture guys can go through just as much work for one venture fund. And working with the manager, we can fight and claw to get $10 million and then have two clients get into it. Yeah. And how do you do that? So you have 400 clients, you have an OCIO
0: business with $20 billion, and you have 10 million of capacity in a manager that
1: many of the clients may want access to. How do you allocate that out? So we have an allocation policy that we stick to every time there's capacity constraints. And what we do is when a manager or fund is approved, and we believe that there'll be capacity constraints, we make all consultants aware of it through email, and they can choose whether it's a fit for their client or not, work with clients to see if they want to allocate, and then we gather all the interest. And so let's say in that example, we think we'll get $10 million of capacity and we get $20 million of interest from our clients. We take that $20 million, put it in a list, and we give that back to the manager, and they make the decision of how they want to allocate. So we're not making the choice of one client over another. We're not choosing OCIO over advisory. They all go in together, and the manager makes that decision. Certainly, when we have over allocations, we're pushing for the manager to make more room for us so our clients can get fully allocated. But when they get cut, it's either a pro rata or some clients don't get in.
0: And from your business perspective, so let's say the same thing, you got 10 million allocation, but there's 300 million of demand. Yeah. And now you're going to have 290 million of disappointed clients. Is
1: it worth it? I can tell you, we haven't had a lot of situations like that. When there's only a little bit of capacity available, there's a couple things going on. Most importantly, it's usually moving really quickly. And so the vast majority of our clients, are not interested in that kind of process where they've got to move that quickly. So when we've only got a little bit of capacity, there's usually only a little bit of interest as well. So that allocation policy, I don't have the numbers, but it comes up half a dozen times a year. It's not the kind of thing where we're using that once a month or once a week. But let's take that example. I think we've always taken the approach that putting clients first is our top priority and so we should not let the convenience of our business drive our decisions we should think about that single client and what matters if it's only 10 million dollars but that's going to help one two three clients we should do the work and so that's been our approach it's another thing like i was talking about with OCIO where maybe it's not the best business decision and it's not as scalable but it's right for our clients and that's what we try to do yeah you've written about megatrends. How do you come up with them? And what are some of those things that matter to you? I mentioned before this process of setting assumptions and having capital market views. And honestly, I'd say we sort of stumbled across this last year in our process. I think we were having a debate about inflation and artificial intelligence came up and automation, what that might mean for wage growth and inflation and We talked about it for a while and sort of, well, maybe it's too far in the future. It shouldn't affect our inflation assumption today. But it kept nagging at us that there's sort of these bigger picture trends that maybe by talking about the core economic factors, talking about economic growth and inflation and productivity and all those things that matter when you're setting economic and market assumptions, maybe we're missing some bigger picture things. And so we started studying some of those And ended up narrowing in on four major megatrends, artificial intelligence, demographics, income inequality, and shifting currency regimes. And we got to do some fascinating research behind each of those. And we've been talking to clients a lot about those. I can tell you, it is thinking in that way is a little bit uncomfortable as a consultant because our entire work lives is spent coming up with an insight. Finding a manager that can implement that insight and effectively execute on it, or finding a set of managers, narrowing down to the ones that make sense for our clients, making a recommendation, executing, getting it into client portfolios. These are, in a lot of ways, very different. They're not actionable today. We like to think in a five to seven year framework for setting our assumptions and our outlook. These will evolve over five to seven years, but in a lot of ways are 20-year trends, 30-year trends. And so they're not necessarily investable today, but I think if you are considering these and incorporating these into your process and expanding your thinking, I think it makes you a better investor over time and allows you to be more aware of these opportunities as they come about, whether it's a micro-opportunity of investing in a manager that's gonna access some of these themes or thinking bigger picture about how they might affect growth how they might affect the geopolitical situation and all the other things that go into making investment decisions. So let's walk through each one and just share your views. Sure. Artificial intelligence comes up every day now. I don't think you can open up a paper and not see something about artificial intelligence. And there's three big factors that have driven that over the last few years. There's computing power. The, the rise in computing power that Gordon Moore in 1965 came up with Moore's law that computing power could double every 18 to 24 months. He thought it could last 10 years. It's been going on for 50 years now. And you know, I think we've all experienced that. If we think about, we think back 20 years to trying to log on with a modem to how quickly stuff comes up on our phones today, these supercomputers that we carry around, data. We all walk around with those phones and leave little digital footprints everywhere we go. So we've created a lot of data. I think the big breakthrough in the last two to three years has been the organization of that data and the ability to structure it and then sell it. And then the last is algorithms where the computing power is there to process this vast amount of data. And there's been great insights the last few years on ways to analyze that data. And that's where all those AI terms start to come up, the machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, all of those things. And so there's a lot of excitement about artificial intelligence. Could it be a productivity boost the way that the internet boom was in the late 90s and early 2000s? It might be. That's very possible when we look at productivity and moves in long wave cycles. So maybe this is another one of those up waves. But there's going to be job displacement that comes with that too. An obvious one is drivers. There's almost 4 million drivers in the US that their primary responsibility is driving. If we get self-driving cars, what happens to all of those people, the displacement that comes with that? And I think as a society, we've done a good job of that historically. We have go back over a century and we shifted an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. So we have done it, but it's a big challenge for our economy to be able to do that. So there's good and bad that comes with that. How do you invest in it? There's venture. Certainly venture managers are talking about artificial intelligence, applying artificial intelligence. We're all investing in it already. If we own the S&P 500, if we've got the Fang stocks in our portfolio, they're spending a lot of research dollars on it. And then one of the more interesting insights in this research is that China, is huge in artificial intelligence. If you look at the publication of AI research, probably 2x has come from China as opposed to the US. China and the US are the big leaders, so looking for ways to get exposure in China, either through venture or some of the big tech companies there, is really interesting. China needs to do it because of their demographic situation. They're trying to get rich before they get old. In 2030, or sometime in the 2030s, China is going to move to negative population growth. If we keep up our growth pace and they keep up, not keep up their growth pace, but let's say a 5%, 4 or 5% real GDP growth, they're going to surpass the US as the largest economy in the world. And so it's a race against time for China. And they need that productivity because the labor force growth is not going to be there. We've been in a demographic boom where prosperity has increased across the world, but with that has come an aging population. So there's Again, opportunities and risks that come with that. That aging population means fewer workers supporting a larger population, but it also means there will be investment opportunities. We've seen some of that already, but one of the best places to be the last few years has been senior housing in the real estate market. And so there'll be opportunities like that and and tying it back to artificial intelligence. That may be a place where displaced workers go, that they can work on elderly care and things like that. We get to income inequality, another you know, specific part of demographics. And if you look at income growth in the US, it's on average nice, steady growth over 50 years. It looks like the US has participated greatly in our overall economic prosperity. You look at the bottom 50%, and the bottom 50% of our economy hasn't seen a wage increase in over 50 years. Now, if we look at it more globally, there's actually been increasing equality. What we've seen is the developing world have an emerging middle class, but that's come at the expense of the developed middle class as those manufacturing jobs shifted to China and other places in the emerging world, and per capita GDP went to 10000 $20,000. You've got a whole swath of the world that's been able to participate in the economy in a way that they haven't historically. But that's meant stagnated wages for a lot of the developed world. And so there's political implications to that, there's social implications to that. I think the ways that you invest in that are trying to invest in a sustainable way. If you look at the UN sustainable development goals, over half of those are trying to promote better equality. And then investing in education. I think we're only going to need more STEM workers over time. And so finding ways to invest that benefit that type of framework, I think, is really powerful. And then shifting currency regimes started out talking a lot about Bitcoin because everyone wanted to hear (laughs) what was going on there. People are a lot less interested now that the bubble's burst there. I think there are two interesting things going on there. One, the underlying technology of Bitcoin, blockchain is really powerful and could be a game changer. There's some things that have to get worked out there. The amount of computing power and energy that gets used for blockchain I think is still a challenge, but there's a lot of places where that can be applied, whether it's supply chain management, contracts, ID management, lots of places where I think we'll see increased usage of blockchain. And then the shifting currency regimes things I think is going to be more about the US-China rivalry and how that plays out that we've seen really two currency regimes in the last 100 years, the gold standard, and then a fiat-based currency regime really with the dollar as the reserve currency. And increasingly, we'll see a more diversified basket with China as they get through some of their transitions playing a bigger role in that currency basket over time. So I think it's the kind of thing where the investment opportunities maybe aren't obvious today. But if you're thinking in that framework and thinking about those long-term trends, and then also thinking about what the future trends might be, I think it just helps you be a better investor over time. The four trends you talk about are almost known. Yep. We don't
0: exactly know the implications, but they're truths that are playing out and the data all supports it. And then we have these traditionally structured asset allocation portfolios filtered by bottom up managers and a rigorous process. How much do you want to look at that traditionally structured portfolio and say, well, we don't know how to invest in these trends specifically? But we think the trends are going to drive things. And so we can therefore calculate that 5% of the portfolio is where it should be. And 95
1: is just chugging along. Sure. That is a really interesting challenge that if we just – you know, everyone wants to move to passive today. If you move to passive, then you're probably not taking advantage of these opportunities. Investing in a more concentrated way, in a more thematic way, I think can allow you to get exposures. If you're investing with managers that you believe are thinking in this framework, then having a more thematic approach might make sense. It's challenging though, because if you think about some of the mega trends that we've seen play out over the last 20, 25 years, if we go back... 25 years, two of the biggest companies in the world, Google and Amazon, didn't exist. So the investment opportunity, I think even though we talk about these trends being talked about a lot, how they actually play out, how they become investable, I would say is a big unknown right now. And so part of it is just, is not how you allocate your portfolio today. It's how you can be nimble enough to access these in the future. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the P word. So With so much
0: money under management, how do you think about active versus passive?
1: We think there's a place for both. We do believe that there are inefficiencies and there are skilled managers that can exploit those inefficiencies. We think it's a lot harder in some places than others. So while we will look at large cap equity and see if there's places where you can be active, it's not a primary focus for us. And so we're very comfortable with clients going passive in some places. We think going passive in other places is almost counterproductive. And I think most people agree with that, that you don't want to be passive in high yields. And you know even if you just want to get exposure, you still want to be active there. You don't want the biggest bonds in your portfolio to be there just because the company's issued more debt. You don't want to be passive in emerging markets, even if it can be a challenging benchmark to beat. You want to be active there. You want to be trading there and not just stuck with what the benchmark offers you. And we see some skill there too. We see that managers can beat the benchmark. We see that managers can beat the benchmark in global equities. I think it's it's about how you structure the portfolio and what type of managers that you're looking for. So we have seen concentrated, more unconstrained managers in the equity space do well. So we think there are places where active makes sense. But We are trying to get managers to think about their fee structures, and that's a benefit of being a large firm, that we can go to managers and try to get preferential fees and pass those on to our clients. So that is critical to us, that if you are going to be active, getting the lowest possible fee that you can is important. And in those areas where you think passive makes sense, a
0: large-cap U.S. equities, what percentage of the assets in that space today of your
1: clients are active versus passive? Very different by client type. It's probably... Over half of large cap is probably, and I'm thinking by client count, not dollar count, is probably passive. If I go by dollar count, it's much, much higher because many of our large public funds are passive in US equities and often running it internally for cost management purposes. But client count wise, it's probably 50-50. And and a lot of clients have just moved away from having a US equity allocation. Some of our smaller and medium-sized clients will have just a global equity allocation. And they'll use global equity managers and then build satellites around that.
0: In all these years of working your way up at NEPC, what's been your biggest mistake?
1: I've made more than my fair share, I'm sure. I think moving into the chief investment officer role, I had managed a medium. So it was probably about a 15 to 20 person team and managed those people directly. And so I think my... My first few years as chief investment officer, I was trying to manage in the same way, and I had managers managing everybody else, and I was just managing those people and not worrying about everyone else on the team and probably got a little bit too distant from the rest of the group. And I think I've tried to change that and tried to get more involved and engaged with everybody else, but I don't know if that's my biggest mistake, but it's one that stands out that I didn't do things the right way and had to correct it. And do you have any particularly memorable investment recommendations? The biggest ones are probably more lucky than good, but going to all clients in 2008 and saying lower equity risk at the beginning of 2008 was a hugely powerful recommendation that worked for clients. And then I mentioned at the beginning, working with corporate clients back then to build liability-driven investing programs. You think about how much rates fell over that time and how much funded status was protected, how much in contributions was saved. That is... I think probably the most powerful one. It was much more about risk management than it was a call that rates were going to fall, but it's always better to be lucky. (laughs) All right, Tim, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It's probably running. Could be golfing, but it's probably running. And it's funny how that's evolved for me. I mentioned I was a runner in college. So it was a competitive thing for me at first and it evolved to be, just a physical activity to stay in shape. Now it's become more of a a family activity and more about the mental health than anything else. I, one of my favorite things to do on weekends is get out and run, run six or eight miles, and I'll be pushing one kid in the stroller and another kid riding the bike with me. So there's the family element to it, but mindfulness and meditating is all the rage now. Everyone talks about that. And as I've heard people talk about it and listen to it, What I hear they get out of it, I've come to realize is what I get out of running. Just that clearing of the head, being in the moment, and being aware. It's as much about the mental health as is the physical health for me these days. What's your biggest pet peeve? Probably passive aggressiveness. I've never figured out a good way to address that or work with a passive aggressive type behavior. So I end up just kind of wanting to scream and rage when I notice it going on. (laughs) Do you have a biggest investment pet peeve as well? I guess being too short term, I think, and we struggle with that. We're setting five to seven year views. And if they're not working in the first three to six months, we've got all of our consultants and clients saying, why do we do this? How do we not see this? (laughs) And I think behaviorally, we all fall victim to it. So I fall victim to it as well. But Focusing on the short-term instead of the long-term is definitely a pet peeve. What reading do you almost never miss? It's probably the Bridgewater Daily Observations. I get that in my email inbox every day and always at least read the first couple paragraphs to hear what they're thinking. Because it comes every day, they can scan the world over a reasonably short period of time, and so you can get a good sense of what's going on. There's great data in there, great insights. They just always give some great perspective on what's going on. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I guess two things. One is, I guess, just grit and determination. My dad was a police officer, and watching how hard he worked, not only the day-to-day job, but then the details on top of that, working 70 hours a week to provide for us. My mother was a stay-at-home mom, but I've never seen a person more focused on a job than my mother of being a mother. So that... Grit and kind of singular focus really always stands out to me. But the other big one is just laughter. More from my mother than my father, but just being able to have fun in any situation and be able to make fun of yourself when you need to and being able to find the joy and humor in something is something that is, I think, probably the most important thing that you can do in life. All right, Tim, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Being able to understand... Another person's perspective. That is something that I think Mike Manning, my boss, our managing partner, has been a great mentor to me in general, but that's something that I think he is great at and has helped me get better at. Whether it's managing people and understanding why they have the perspective that they have in a negotiation or contentious situation, whether with a client or with a colleague, understanding why they're coming to the table thinking the way that they are, and why they have the view that they do. And then in research, whether it's manager research, understanding why an investment team working on a strategy has the view that they have, and how they get to the view that they do, or just understanding the overall marketplace. If I've got this view, why is the collective group of market participants thinking differently? I just think it's a really helpful perspective, rather than just narrowing in on your own view of things. How can I be wrong, and why are they thinking the way that they think? I wish I could be better at it, but it's something that I've improved from being terrible at to okay at. (laughs) Tim, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this
0: episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.